uh, as your pastor, as the pastor of this church that uh, um, I believe in long pastorates if it's possible, and sometimes it's clear it's time to not be the pastor anymore. Uh, I've been 15 and a half years at uh, the church I serve in Harrisburg, and uh, I, uh, I just think it's great to do that. By the time I retire, probably 17 years or so, and I think that's a, a good way to go. The scripture reading this morning is uh, taken from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, if you brought your Bible, you might want to follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible and the ones that are in the uh, pockets in the chairs in front of you, it's on uh, uh, page 965, 965. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word, and let's uh, hear and submit ourselves to it. Beginning in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart, verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Chapter 5 and verse 1. For we know that if, we, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. We ask, O Lord, that you would guide us in understanding of it, that your Holy Spirit would edit out the air of human wisdom that I might bring, and that uh, your Holy Spirit would apply the truth of your word to our hearts and lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm an old school guy, and I realized that 
Um, everybody was reading the scriptures behind me <laughs> or on the screen. And I looked up and I thought, oh, well, I could be reading from there, but I couldn't get the angle. And so uh, um, just bear with me as I, um, as I deal with those kinds of issues. I do use a sermon outline. I've used one since I was here at uh, uh, Covenant so many years ago. It was called Covenant then, not Covenant Community. And uh, I do it for several reasons. One is uh, I know as long as I've been preaching that people drift off when I preach. <laughs> I know that their minds wander when I preach. And this helps them to come back when they say, oh, this is what I missed while I was going on. <laughs> There's also a language problem. In our church, we have uh, people from a variety of cultures, a variety of backgrounds, a variety of nations, and uh, uh, they often find it helpful to be able to uh, keep up with my rather slow speech, uh, with my rather rapid speech, and uh, be able to figure some things out later and go home and look up words that they uh, heard me say but didn't understand. Paige and I are so very, very thankful to John and to uh, the session uh, for uh, this kind invitation to be here uh, and celebrate God's provision of this new space uh, that's going to be used for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And what a privilege it is for us uh, to be here. What a privilege it is for us to, to see the vibrancy of worship, to hear the, the, the joy, uh, to see, um, Karen Clicker said to me, uh, Oh, John made a mistake today. He said he's never going to be either to corral us all in after we're in that greeting time. It's going to be difficult. And to watch you all interact with one another has been absolutely uh, wonderful. Uh, when John first contacted me about doing this, I think it was maybe in October of last year, uh, there was some thought maybe the building would be due in December. Um, well, and then he offered me January 20th, or February 10th, I asked him very seriously, John, would you please choose the one without snow? <laughs> in the bulletin, you can see in the offering list that nobody gave an offering on January 20th. <laughs> there was snow, there was ice, and uh, I'm glad that uh, John, with his prophetic vision uh, and leader, it's no wonder that things are doing so well here, that um, at any rate. And I also prefer to be here today with today's temperatures um, than the first Sundays in January of 1982 when I moved here. Uh, I was up here for an installation service uh, on the second, or either the second or the third, I think it was the third Sunday in January, um, January 17th, I'm pretty sure it was. That, had, that Sunday had the lowest second lowest temperature on record in the history of Pittsburgh. I think it was 1899 that had one lower for that. It was only a, a kind of a warm minus 18 degrees um, for 35 hours that weekend. It was below zero, and uh, it was uh, quite cold. So I'm glad to, to be here uh, this day, especially to be here as we're thinking about the dedication of this new space over here. Um, and uh, we're uh, grateful that is the township saying that this got to go. <laughs> That's what I thought I remembered. Because we promised them it was a temporary <laughs> modular unit. Um, we had trouble with the township at the time uh, getting that uh, modular system approved uh, because uh, when they were looking through the paperwork, they found 
that although we'd been worshiping and had this building built and all this sort of thing on this property, that uh, uh, one of the deed papers did not have a Chanot name signed on it where it was supposed to be signed, and they weren't going to let us go forward until we got that straight. Mr. Chanot was dead, and uh, so we tracked down a living relative, and the township was willing to let them sign off on that. But uh, the temporary building is almost ready to go, having been used of God for so many of these years. I want to follow as an outline this morning the words that John wrote to me when uh, uh, we talked about a possible theme, and uh, he wrote something about, I was thinking in the realm of the Lord's faithfulness in the life of this congregation and the renewed call to the gospel faithfulness as we have new facilities to carry out the ministry that Jesus called us to do. As I considered a variety of passages uh, from which to speak on, on those kind of ideas, the scripture readings that John graciously uh, included in our worship service this morning came to mind. As we sang in our uh, song of approach this morning, uh, we can give thanks to God for his faithfulness, both in the present and in the past. Our God has been our help in ages past. There have been times of pleasant providence for this congregation, and there have been times of unpleasant providence for this congregation. But one thing never changed in the midst of all of that. Our triune God has been our shelter from the stormy blast. Our triune God has been, uh, whether it's in far past or the uh, recent past, uh, uh, the saints have been able to say, we have dwelt secure. And as John was saying about uh, the saints all over the world, it's at the Church of Christ. Uh, uh, we, we worship with the, the saints who've gone before and, and know the church. Uh, this past uh, week on, on Saturday, Friday, Friday night, I guess it was, I, I sent out an email to our congregation. We, we do a prayer and information email. And I reminded them that starting 24 hours from when I was writing it, that the church in Australia, the church in New Zealand, the church in Asia would start to have their worship services and to begin to pray for the church around the world as it would come to us around this time uh, for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And the, the church of Christ, and particularly this church of Christ, has uh, dwelt secure under the shadow of God's throne, and we are so thankful to God for that. Our defense has been sure. Our sufficiency has been in God himself. Our sufficiency has not been in how much money we've raised for the building fund or haven't raised. Our sufficiency is not in uh, whether the bathroom stalls are finished and, or not. Our sufficiency is not in the wisdom of our elders. The sufficiency is not in the mercy of our deacons. The sufficiency, as we sang, is clearly in God himself. And we know that it will continue that same way no matter what he wisely and lovingly and sovereignly brings into our lives individually or as a corporate community. In the book of Ezra, as we heard in our uh, Old Testament reading, we read about the people of God who had been in captivity. They'd been carried away from Jerusalem and they'd been in captivity. And the Lord, the Bible tells us, stirred up the heart of, Cyprus, of Cyrus. He was the king of Persia. And he stirred up his heart so he would fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah, to have the exiles return home to Jerusalem, and then the temple would be rebuilt. Remember that God is sovereign over all of the hearts 
of leaders, including a pagan king Cyrus, including a, um, a pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, including all of the authorities that are around us this day. In our country right now, Christians have rightly been incensed and righteously angry over the murder of children, children in the womb and children who have survived the womb. We see sexual immorality being enshrined in our culture through the laws of our culture and in many places, even in the visible church today. But we don't panic. We know that God is just as much in charge now as he was in the days of Cyrus. We know that he is sovereign. We know that he is wise, that he has a plan. And even as you were bursting at the seams before and, and needed a place uh, like this, God was sovereign in his timing and the wisdom of when this building would be ready or will soon be ready, or however that, that goes. Sometimes we just don't understand what's going on, whether it's in the evil of the world or in God's own plan for our lives. Sometimes we need to remember, often we need to remember the language in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And Jesus answered the disciples when they were asking. They wanted to know what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, where was it going to happen. Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed. There's some things that are just not for us to know or understand. And Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts uh, than your thoughts. It has been a wonderful provision of God, what he has done here in this congregation, using your pastors, using your session for the glory and honor of God. When we talk about delays, I don't know, Karen, have you ever showed the um, drawings of the new building? Uh, <laughs> they're in her basement long far ago. We had designs for what was going to happen here and what was going to happen there, and that wasn't a part of God's plan. But in his wonderful plan, we have this day to dedicate this particular building. But at any rate, when the exiles had been under the, uh, under the, the rule of Cyrus, and then they are uh, sent away, as God moved in Cyrus's heart, they come and they start to build. And just like last April or May, a foundation was laid, and the stones were thrown in, and the, the prayers and the, and the joys and the thoughts and the ambitions and what might happen uh, were put into that uh, foundation. The foundation was laid not for an education building, but for the temple that was going to be rebuilt. And we read earlier, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the directions of, the, of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. And the sound of our shouting here today, the sound of our singing to praise God today might not be heard very far. But we have great reason to celebrate that a faithful God who brought the children of Israel out from Cyrus's care to build the temple is the same God who has been working in this congregation and brings us to the place where we have this new facility to be used for his honor and glory. Appropriate for us this morning to shout with thanksgiving, 
it's appropriate this morning for us to say, thank you, God, for what you have done. Oh, your loving kindness, your steadfast love continues to this congregation on this day and in Lord willing in the days ahead. The adversaries in Ezra's time, they, they tried to discourage the work. Uh, then and now, the people who are the skeptics, the people who don't like the church, try to discourage the work of the church. But we're not to be overwhelmed by any temporal opposition that might happen here in this township, in the Commonwealth, in the United States, or the world. No. We're going to keep our eyes on the things that are eternal. We're going to keep our eyes on the things that we read that are eternal, that are going to be taught in that wing, that are going to be preached from this pulpit, that are going to be uh, taught us in, in, in small groups and in Bible studies and classes and all the rest. And we're going to say, no matter what happens around us, we're going to keep our eyes on that word. Because as we've heard in the call to worship, God is faithful in the midst of affliction or other times. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so the first half of what John had, had written to me about is, is in all of that, how much we rejoice, how much we give thanks to God for his faithfulness. We should do that week after week, his faithfulness to this congregation and to the church of Christ at large. But now the second thing I wanted us to move is the other uh, part that John pointed us to and that is the calling of the Church of Christ here in Marshall Township, in Wexford, in Pittsburgh, and around the world. We need to be a people who, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4, we need to be a people who look to the eternal things. And we not, cannot be weighed down by the things that are transient and by the things that are seen. The things that are unseen are eternity, are eternal. And day by day, we need to live with eternity's values in view. We need to live with eternity in view. And so when the discouragement comes uh, in the office, in the schoolroom, when this discouragement comes in the community, in the political world, we say, wait a minute, we're going to keep our eyes on heaven where our king reigns. We're going to keep our eyes on heaven that we're advancing his kingdom. We're going to see the things that are never going to be destroyed by anyone here on this earth. And we're going to live consciously about the world of eternity. We need to make sure that we know what is really important. Here at Covenant Community, we need to realize that God has placed us here, placed you here for the extension of the church of Christ and his kingdom. I often remind the congregation in Harrisburg, political city uh, that it is, what good well, let me just ask you this question first. Let me set the stage a little differently. Have you ever thought, and I don't want you to tell me what your political persuasion is, but have you ever thought, I wish I could just convince somebody to vote the way I vote? Uh, don't you, have you ever thought, I just wish that they understood the political world the way I do? Um, and, and we get this idea, wouldn't it be great if we could do something along those lines? But I remind our congregation repeatedly, what good does it do if you convince somebody to register or to vote 
to your party, whether it's Democrat or Republican, whether it's Green or Constitutional or Libertarian, and I know there's a few other, um, and they lose their soul. What good has it done, ultimately, if you convince them to your political views or your economic views or your social views, and they perish under the judgment and wrath of God for all eternity? What does it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? And that's got to be the focus that we, that we need to, to recognize. And then we, we do see in, in letter B that, that everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We need to be concerned about eternal values. This is what's important. Judgment Day is coming for everyone. Short-term Judgment Day at death and then ultimately at Christ's return. That's what's of important. And folks, I know that if you've been sitting under John's preaching for uh, this uh, for many years, uh, it's a fearful, fearful thing to face a holy, holy, holy God as a sinner. No one will be exempt. We might not think that God knows, might pretend and think somehow we're, we're hiding from God, but he knows everything and he holds us account perfectly. If Google, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Alexi, Siri, Siri, and whatever else, no, I'm leaving some people, your favorites out. If they all know where you are all the time and what you're doing all the time and what you're writing and they're reading your emails and they're sending you advertisements based on your email. They send you advertisements based on your searches. They, send you, they know everything about you. I have a friend who's uh, Google vice president for, uh, uh, for medicine on the cloud, I think it's called, and, and it's being used wonderfully around the world to help people in, in places that do not have uh, uh, ongoing medicine or advanced medical uh, capabilities. Uh, brings uh, all kinds of testing to those places that are in remote spaces. But if they know everything about you, how hard is it for us to understand that, that our all-knowing, always, everywhere, present God will bring even our thoughts to account? That every word will be held in account? And the Apostle Paul is aware of that so much so that he says in, in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, because of all that I understand that's going on, I work to, uh, to uh, um, persuade. I'm sorry, I couldn't get the right word. Uh, I, I'm committed to a ministry of persuading people to the truths of the gospel, to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul knew that the love of Christ both the love of Christ for him as well as the love of Christ that he has for Christ and some debate on how that should be 
taken. Uh, one of the ways is true. But the love of Christ controlled him and that he was no longer to live for himself, but for Christ. And as people in this community, in this covenant community, know that we cannot, you cannot, this culture needs you to live not for yourselves, but for Christ, but for others, for the advancement of his kingdom. And we have to take that seriously because we have so much in Christianity today in the United States, in Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth, where we're thinking we live for ourselves. It's my pleasure. It's my comfort. It's, it's what I want to do. And that's not the call of our sovereign God. It's not the call of our sovereign God to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ's death on our behalf. We need to be a people. You need to grow more and more. You're already there as a congregation, I know. But you need to be a people who are more and more concerned about the spiritual well-being of others than your own comfort. These are life and death issues that will be taught in that education wing, that will be uh, taught in praise and worship here, that will be done in um, administrative work down the hall, that we have to be able to say these are life and death issues. And we're going to live like that, think like that, day by day. These are heaven and hell issues is why this local congregation has been put here by our God. We were and we are in need of reconciliation with God. We sang about that. We've uh, read that in the scriptures. And we always need to keep in mind what, where I grew up at uh, Westminster Seminary, the creator-creature distinction. We need to always be thinking about that the creator and all of his glory and majesty and all of his attributes is far greater than us, the creatures. And we need to remember that creator-creature distinction. We need to remember the difference between the Holy One and us as sinners. Our relationship to the creator has been ruined by the sin of Adam and Eve and by our own sin and our actions, the things that where we have uh, not done what God commanded us to do and have not done the things that he has called us to. We're enemies of God as a people, as human beings. We've rebelled against him. We deserve his wrath for all of eternity, and we're in desperate need of reconciliation. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here and, the, and what his ministry has been called to do and uh, what, the, what the Church of Christ is called to do, and that is to proclaim this ministry of reconciliation. And notice the language, that God did this by not counting our sin against us. Not counting our sin against us. If you ever hired a lawyer and they count your 10 minutes of conversation, probably every minute, and they round up uh, your 10, I'm not sure how that works. Uh, your credit cards, they count up what you owe uh, your student loans, they count up what you owe, and you keep adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. It's counted. It's a financial term. And, and here Paul says that God has not counted our sins against us. 
How can a just God do that? How can a just God not count our sins against us? My favorite illustration in all the world of how God can do that was shared with me and a whole bunch of others many, many, many years ago uh, by Henry Krabendam. He was uh, uh, one of the uh, professors at Covenant Seminary down in the Chattanooga area, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee and Georgia. And uh, it was so helpful to me because he took three books and he, he held up before us that there was a, a book and on it, it had the name of a non-believer. And you had to fantasize at this point if you ever watched uh, Beauty and the Beast and you saw the big library uh, that, uh, uh, that she was so excited to be a part of. Or maybe you've been down to the Library of Congress and you see all those books. And Well, for a minute, just pretend that God has a library. And in it is a book with every one of our lives. And the, the picture is here of a God taking the book off the shelf and reading about all of the sin of the non-believer. And you can imagine that the holy, holy, holy God is furious as he sees the sin, and he's pouring out his wrath for all of eternity in hell upon the person who just is a non-believer forever and ever and ever. But then he said, there's another book. And he said, that book is the book of, it would have my name on it, maybe your name if you're here as a believer, but it has the believer's name. And the picture is that when God opens my book, what does he see? He sees all my sin, my sin, my sin, my sin. And you can almost imagine as he knows my sin, and it would be on you know, the tiniest microchip dot that it could possibly be to fill up a small book like this of my sin. And, and his wrath would, I would deserve to have his wrath poured out upon me. But then Dr. Krabendam said, but wait a minute, there's another book. And the father would take off this other book off of his shelf. And it would be the, shelf, the book that has the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on it. And as he would take off the book of the Lord Jesus Christ, he would begin to read completely obedient to every single part of the law, completely obedient to his parents, fulfilled all of the Old Testament requirements, not one thing done out of disobedience to his heavenly Father. And you can imagine... Oh, the Father in heaven, in this illustration, he does not have arms, he doesn't have a body like we have. Don't quote the catechism to me, I know that's true, it's an illustration. That the Father would wrap his arms around Christ with delight, smiling as he reads of the obedience of Christ. But then something takes place. A great transaction takes place. And that transaction is, here's the book of Bob, and the Father rips out my pages and all the sin that I've done. And one of the beautiful things is that he then puts my sin, Jesus became sin for us. And he puts my sin and the sin of all the people who are trusting in Christ alone. And he pours out his wrath upon Christ for my sin. But then... There's this other beautiful word here, aren't there? That what happens? That we might become the righteousness of God. Because another transaction takes place. And it's not just that, that, that my sin got put into Christ's book and he bore the wrath, but he rips out, as it were, the righteousness and obedience of Christ. And what's he do? He puts it in my book. 
He puts it in your book. And Christ was the one who, who, who died, and, and as he paid the penalty, yes, he also imputes to me righteousness, and he gives me the right. So now the Father takes off my book, and maybe your book. And he begins to read, and what's he see? Does he see my sin? No. Does he see my rebellion? No. He sees the beauty and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Father loves the one to whom he has imputed this righteousness. And you see, the measure of God's love, as we read earlier in the service from Romans chapter 5, the measure of God's love has nothing to do with the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of our circumstances. It has nothing to do with whether we have cancer or we don't have cancer. The measure of God's love is not our health, it's not our finances, it's not our retirement funds, it's not our jobs. It's not whether we have a good school teacher or a bad school teacher. It's not in anything like that. But the measure of God's love is not in the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of our circumstances. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ, died for us. So where do we go from here? We continue to give thanks for God's provision. We give thanks for the provision of a session and pastors and members, deacons and members, and we give thanks to God with shouts of thanksgiving for the building extension that he has given to us. We recognize that this is not a building for building's sake. It's not even for us to delight in and joy in. And I imagine if I was here uh, week after week, I would see lots of little children enjoying the extended hallways, okay? And they'll run through the hallways and they'll delight in their new classroom. But it's not a building for us to delight in. It's a place for covenant community, church, to be training disciples to fulfill the Great Commission. It's a place that Covenant Community Church can use to train up children, to train adults, to train teenagers in the principles of God's Word. It's a place where the message of reconciliation between God and man is taught and proclaimed. And then that the congregation that has been taught that and believes that takes the message to a watching world to seek to persuade people for the cause of Christ. How is any generation or individual going to bear the fruit of which we heard read earlier? How are they going to bear fruit and learn about the sanctity of human life in a culture where the sanctity of human life falls away? How are they going to learn about the two natures of Christ? How are they going to learn about the Trinity? How are they going to learn that Jesus is the only way? They're going to do it by abiding in Christ, we read. And by teaching them to abide in Christ, to learn about the Trinity, to learn about worship, to learn about Bible reading, to learn about praying, to learn about tithing, how it is that we as a church function for the glory and honor of God. Take the ministry of reconciliation to Wexford, Pittsburgh, and the world. 
You may have heard of Penn and Teller out in Las Vegas. Uh, Penn Gillette, an atheist, atheist, atheist. And one day, a Christian man had attended his show. He came back the next day and uh, gave him uh, a New Testament, uh, Gideon's New Testament in Psalms. And uh, you can go and, and watch at that uh, website, that YouTube website. Um, uh, Penn Gillette was overwhelmed with that. I mean, he was still a confirmed atheist. But he takes this blog post, video blog, whatever it's called, and he talks about this man really loved him. And this man was willing to proselytize, even though he knew he was an atheist, but he really believed it. And then, and then, then Pendulette says to us as Christians, why do you hate your neighbors so much? If you believe in heaven, if you believe in hell, why do you hate your neighbors so much? not to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, make no mistake, we don't go out and share the gospel because Penn Gillette says we should. We go and share the gospel because we're called upon to be making maturing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called upon to be in obedience to his command and that's what's going to be taught here, continuing as it has in the past. And then one final word of warning. In this context here, as Paul comes in verse 29, he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador speaks the message given to him. Doesn't add to it, doesn't take away from it. We are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. And who does he speak to? He says, we write to you. We write to you and implore you to be reconciled to God. The visible church of Christ, the visible church in Corinth, needed to be reminded of reconciliation with God. Let's pray that Christ will be honored, continue to be honored, has in the past, continue to be honored in the use of this building for his honor and his glory to call ourselves and the world to being reconciled to a holy, holy Holy God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I thank you so much for having given us your word. We thank you, O oh Father, for your mercy and grace for us. We would ask, O oh Father, that the blessing now would be upon us as we seek to glorify